I'm Liam Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, bonjour, folcha, and welcome to the Motivated Classroom podcast. I am really excited and delighted to have here in front of me on screen, of course, in another country, the wonderful Jade Pierce, who's going to talk to us today about research-based professional development, evidence-informed schooling, all sorts of really fascinating stuff that I'm really enthusiastic at talking to Jade about. I followed her work for so long. But of course, first and foremost, this is the Motivated Classroom podcast, so we have to start with our little bit of Irish. So today, our little Irish word is uh, an easy one because it kind of sounds like English and it's the phrase Tome Obelta. Now Obelta in Irish means I'm able to do something and it does come from the English. You can also say Tome in on which is a bit more difficult. So we'll go with Obelta. That's our Irish phrase for today. And before we get started of course just a huge thank you to all of the patrons of the podcast all around the world. You are getting me through. Thank you for supporting me with my coffee and crisp addiction. I really appreciate it every month getting my nice coffees and crisps to keep me going. Without further ado, I'm going to say a quick hello to Jade. Jade, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to it. So I'm going to try and introduce Jade now, and this is the part I always struggle with. Jade is an assistant head teacher leading on teaching and learning and professional development at Walton High School in Staffordshire. She's an evidence lead in education for Staffordshire Research School and a member of the Education Endowment Foundation's Expert Voices group. She is an avid tweeter and shares lots of stuff on Twitter at Pierce Misses. And that is how I found Jade. And I actually listened to her speaking on another podcast and I was just absolutely fascinated by what she had to share. And a lot of my current job, my my current role at the school I'm in right now, where I'm a teaching and learning research lead, or what it's officially called here is leader of pedagogical innovation. A lot of that came from Jade and she was very supportive and very helpful to me when I was trying to plan out that role and what it might look like to have an evidence informed school. So a huge thank you, Jade, for that. So I'm just going to go over to you now, Jade, and ask you the the first question I have really is how did you get into this current role and and why do you think it's so important to, to come at research based? education, evidence-informed education and learning about teaching and learning. Well, why is that so important and how did you get into it? Well, first of all, I'll say in terms of getting into my role, this is the school that I was an NQT at actually. So um, it's been a series of promotions where I started off um, as a classroom teacher and then um, I was in a pastoral role, so ahead of year for a number of years and then moved across into head of department and then finally got promoted to um, assistant head five or six years ago I lose track now because of Covid. In terms of how I got into my role I think there's a couple of things really. First of all it was trying to do my current role really well so whether that's being the best teacher that I could in the classroom or trying to um, move things on as a head of department and make real improvements to my department and then I think it was also trying to take on things that were maybe outside of that role. So for example um, when I was a head of department I, I knew I was really interested in teaching and learning and so one of the things I got involved in was mental a trainee um, I started doing our NQT observations and helping out with those obviously in England they have to be observed a certain number of times across the school year that kind of thing so getting involved as, as much as I can as I could sorry outside of my role um, I think was really important and then in terms of why my role is so important I honestly think that our, our jobs are the best jobs in school I'm sure everyone everyone thinks that <laughs> I think that we can all accept that one of the main elements of schooling is is your learning for pupils whether that's in primary school because it's knowledge that they're going to build on for however many years or whether that's in year 11 and year 13 when the, those outcomes really matter to, to pupils. And so to me, the quality of teaching in school is, is one of, if not the most important aspects. And so that's why I think they're all so important, really. I completely agree with you. And and I think, you know, I, I've spoken to Darren Leslie about this stuff before in many
many other teaching and learning research leads. And I think we all have that, you know, unifying factor that we find research around education really interesting and we're quite passionate about it. And I think that really helps, actually. But it's wonderful to hear you speak about it like that. And could you talk to us a little bit about what your internal professional development looks like at your school and and maybe the journey you've been on? You know, where did it start and kind of where are you now? And, and how do you think that helps you to motivate your staff and your teachers? Because at the end of the day, a lot of this podcast is to do with that key part of motivation. So, yeah, maybe just tell us what it looks like in your school. Yeah, so it's a really big question. So I'll try and try and break it down a little bit. So I think in terms of what it looks like in our school now, uh, there's there's two things to that, really. First of all, we have really built up an evidence informed approach to teaching at our school. So for us, that will mean, for example, that uh, we have a strong focus on retrieval practice because we know that it's really important to use retrieval practice to make sure that pupils are remembering the content for the long term. It means we use explicit instruction with novice pupils instead of maybe discovery learning because evidence would support that as being most effective. It means we take account of cognitive load theory and we try to manage cognitive load in our teaching. It means that we use questioning techniques which have been observed um, as being most effective for getting as many pupils involved in classroom discussions, all that kind of thing. So I think that's the first thing in terms of what it means to be evidence informed. I think that we also have lots of CPD on evidence informed teaching and learning. So if you follow me on Twitter or if you've read my blog or anything like that, you'll have, you'll have heard this already. So sorry if it's repeating myself, but we've got those evidence informed teaching and learning priorities and then we do whole school briefings on those. So that would involve us as a school looking at the research behind them, looking at the theory of why they're effective. So looking at the cognitive science model of memory, all that kind of thing. And then looking at examples of how we might implement these in different subjects and looking at how we can implement these things to be most effective. I think that's really important and something that definitely the journey that we've been on has, has enabled us to refine our approach over time. So things like, for example, making sure that when we do retrieval, um, we focus on higher order skills as well as just factual knowledge. All that kind of thing is, is built into those sessions. And then we also give a lot of our um, CPD time over to departments. And I think that's crucial to allow teachers and departments to really make whatever aspect of teaching you're looking at fit in their context and in their subject and for their pupils. So, so we do a lot of that. Over time, we've tried to really increase our teachers' engagement with research. So trying to move away from someone standing up and saying, this is what the research shows, but actually to teachers engaging themselves in research. So we do that in a number of ways. We look at research in whole school sessions. We have what we call flexi inset days. So that basically means that two of our inset days are flexi and they're in the summer term just before we break up for the holidays. And if you've accrued the hours that you need, so 10 hours for for two days, you get to break up two days early. Now everyone likes that because you get to finish early for the summer holidays. But for us as a school, it actually means that we get 10 hours worth of really high quality CPD. So some of the things that you can do for those sessions would be a research session where you meet whoever wants to attend the session. You read a piece of research. So we might have looked this year at cognitive load theory, uh, research that every every teacher needs to know. And we've looked at the Kirshner paper on um, putting students on the path to, to learning, all those kind of things. So things that match with our teaching and learning priorities. And then we discuss our learning from that and how it can impact our teaching. We also allow staff to accrue time for independent reading. That can come from a reading list that we provide, but it can also be a member of staff emailing me, for example, and saying, oh, I'm really interested in effective homework. Have you, have you got any reading that I could do? Or I'm really interested in cognitive load theory. Have you got any additional reading that I can do? So that's been really powerful to enable us to actually get teachers to engage in research themselves. 
And then we have two research groups at school. So we have a teaching and learning research group, we call that, call it. And again, that's where we engage in research. So we read a piece of research in advance of the meeting and we look at some questions that we're going to go in, uh, going through in the meeting and then we discuss that as a group. Now, that is one of my favourite meetings that I go to, actually, because the quality of the discussions and the things that we can look at as a team are are amazing and I'm sure, uh, you know, don't happen in every school across, across the country. So we do that. And then we also do a teaching and learning inquiry groups and that that is a bit more about teachers trying some strategies for themselves so we often use that to look at our teaching and learning priorities for the for the next year that we we want to spread across the whole school but we want some teachers to trial that for us in advance so for example this year um, we've identified that we all need to do some work on questioning and the use of questioning techniques in our um, teaching and so our teaching and learning inquiry group are are looking at questioning and checking for understanding so what we do there is we all read sorry I'm just talking and talking so tell me if you want me. <laughs> no, 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 it's fascinating. Well, one of the things I might just quickly jump in there is that you're you're already talking about it is those priorities. That's what I was going to ask you actually was how did you come to those key teaching and learning priorities and how many of them might you have in a school year? Great question. So we have got for this academic year, one, one really important thing I will say is it's super tempting to try and improve everything. You know, you want to yeah. uh, use explicit instruction. You want everyone to have a good understanding of cognitive load theory you want to do retrieval practice you want to do spacing and interleaving you want to give really high quality mm. feedback i think that it's that ho- the whole thing isn't it about not concentrating on too many things poorly but actually concentrating on a few things and doing it really well so i, I think three or four is probably the most elements of pedagogy that you can probably attempt to change properly and really embed those practices and keep those practices for the long term and then link to that these have been our teaching and learning priorities for the last four years and we haven't changed them so we identified right so we've got four sorry we've got retrieval practice challenge literacy and feedback and we identified that they were going to be the most important things to our school and to our pupils um, and then we've kept them for, for four years and I, and I think probably any change before three years will mean that you know if you're moving on to something else you're probably doing that before those things are properly embedded so so that's the kind of time frame but in terms of how we identified them there's been loads of really good uh, writing recently about not just picking up the next new thing because everyone's doing it on Twitter or everyone's doing it or you've been to a school and they've done it really well but actually really looking at right what are the problems are in our school what do we need to improve on and letting those feed through to your priority areas rather than thinking right I want to implement this but not actually for a reason in your school so for example when we started to look at um, retrieval practice we did that because we had a, a culture like there wasn't many many schools at the time where we really heavily focused on year 11 intervention because we teach and teach and teach and teach and then we'd get to April of year 11 and then we'd start what we would call revision then and realize that actually lots of pupils had forgotten lots of content because we hadn't revisited it properly yeah of course and um, so that that really came from that and then literacy for example we realized that our students we have we have really nice kids and they all work really hard but they actually were struggling in some cases to access the question just because uh, in exams for example or tests just because they're literally levels weren't up to and I mean the really high end you know the really really high end of things so really I would say have a look at the main problems in your school and the areas of weakness and that should kind of feed through into your priorities. That's really interesting you say that quite glad that you've said it in that way because that's very similar to what we did here at our school and actually where my job came from so the role that I'm in involved it's a 20% role of of my timetable which is essentially about helping teachers to engage with the evidence-based research around 
good teaching, what is good learning, etc. Our key priorities actually came from we were involved in a self-study, which we have to do, I think it's every five years for our accreditation with the International Baccalaureate. You do a big self-study. Every member of the school is involved. It goes on for a whole year and it can be quite burdensome at the time. But at the end, you come out with like a really in-depth understanding of your school and, and the issues and the problems that we may have. And so that's where ours came from. Well, I was leading the teaching and learning group with a primary school teacher and we had a big, big group of teachers there. And, and over time and over lots of looking and writing and thinking about things, we came down to these kind of 10 action points that we wanted to do in our school. And then we all voted on them and we came in with our three. And so those top three things for us in our school were similar to yours. One of them is retrieval practice and memory, just about making sure that we are doing the most of the things that really help all students. Second was to do with motivation, was trying to get students to get away from focusing on the grade and actually thinking about the process of learning as a whole and the intrinsic benefits of learning. So that was the second one. And our third one was strategies and approaches to reach all learners, not just the real high flyers and maybe not just the ones who are struggling, but to actually achieve and help all learners. So we're looking at the universal design for learning. So it's really nice to hear that there's a kind of a, a lined up approach. And, and I definitely took a lot of, of what you said in, in those previous podcasts from that. Thinking about that a little bit further, Jade, one of the things for me that I, I'd love to ask you about is where and how do you allocate time for this? So you talked about meetings and you talked about getting together. And is it like a weekly staff meeting, a monthly one? Or how is the time allocated for this? Or is it just done in teachers own time? How does that work? Like I said, we do have the two flexing set days and everyone has the 10 hours that they have to accrue so when you go to a research twilight or when you go to a pedagogy twilight or when you do some reading that forms that that part of time so obviously the the twilight sessions actually we do um either before school or after school and try to give as much flexibility there as possible and the independent reading is just independent reading so that can be done whenever suits you best and then the teaching and learning research groups that we have we meet once um a half term and that's just a voluntary basis one one night after school when there's nothing else in the calendar so we kind of have to squeeze that in but it's a it's a proper calendared meeting um nothing else can then be set on those dates so that everyone can that wants to attend can attend and then we use a lot of our inset days as well so we try to really prioritize teaching and learning in our inset days now that's super tempting to say oh but we just need to do this safeguarding thing we try to do as much as we can in, in other formats basically so that we keep our meeting time we also have what we call subject knowledge and pedagogy sessions um, and this was completely stolen from Durrington High School I think it was who, who introduced this first of all and that is time in departments to look at either subject pedagogy or subject specific research or subject knowledge and again just really highlighting that importance of subjects making things their own what firstly but also that CPD can actually yeah. be, be subject knowledge and trying to improve that as well so it's about slotting things in you know where you can and we like I said we try okay. to give as many opportunities for for staff as possible so that then you can kind of pick and choose what what works for you and I'm really glad to hear that because that ties very closely in with the research around autonomy and motivation because we know that when teachers have and students of course have a level of choice or ownership or direction over what they're doing then that does help with their motivation and actually the research would show that autonomy is the catalyst for motivation so do 
the fact that your your teachers have some choice and ownership over what they're doing and you've given them a range of options is fantastic and that that will really help. Speaking a little bit more about motivation. So one of the basic psychological needs for motivation is competence, like feeling like you can do it, feeling like you're good at your job, that you're able to do something. So do you think in your position, having, you know, leading yourselves into being a more evidence informed school, do you think that has helped your teachers to feel a sense of competence, to feel better at their jobs? Yeah, 100% massively. And I'll go through some reasons in a minute. But I think firstly, it's important to point out how important that feeling of competence is to teaching. I think we forget sometimes that, that teaching is almost like a performance, isn't it? You know, you're walking into a classroom and it is a bit of a performance profession. And the more confident you feel, the better you're going to be able to deal with questions from pupils and the better you're going to lead your classroom management and all that. So I think it's crucial. I think that being an evidence-informed school helps you in a couple of ways to feel more competent. Firstly, I think we know that evidence helps us to identify those best bets, those things that are most likely to result in improved learning. And so certainly with me, if I'm teaching a topic and I'm using evidence-informed strategies then I feel more confident in what I'm doing because it's not me guessing. It's not me trying something and thinking, oh, I'm not really sure if that's going to work. Actually, you know, it's strategies where there's a big body of evidence to suggest that they will work. And I think think that's one point. I think the second thing is then you see the results of that in your pupils' learning. And again, that makes you feel more confident that you're teaching in a really good way. So we've been using retrieval practice for five or six years now. And there is a huge difference in the amount of knowledge that our pupils retain and can use in future lessons and can use in tests and that kind of thing so I think that gives you confidence that you you are doing the right thing and makes you feel more competent and then I also think that linking back to that that subject knowledge if you can use your CPD to improve your subject knowledge again that makes you feel more competent as a teacher and being evidence informed one of the first things that we always look at is well your subject knowledge has got to be really really good you know you can't there's no point using explicit instruction and having a really clear explanation if actually your explanation isn't good enough because your subject knowledge isn't good enough so i think that if we can highlight that through an evidence informed approach and then take steps to address that you go into the room you feel really confident in your knowledge you feel really confident in your teaching strategies you can see the effects of those strategies coming through in the people's learning and so definitely helps a feeling of competence and and massively motivation so we've got teachers now who will email me and say oh I've listened to this podcast it was great here's a link or I had an email last night from one of our teachers saying I've been reading this article I think it'd be really good to share across the school it's really clear I don't I'm not saying that I want all teachers to get to that stage I don't think it's necessary for all teachers to give up all of their free time to engage in research but it, it is almost like lighting that fire and we will remember Liam when we started our journey into evidence-informed teaching I mean certainly uh, this is my I think 14th year as a teacher and for the first maybe eight years I heard nothing about evidence-informed teaching so it was like a slow gradual process and I think it's that you start engaging with a little bit of research and you think well that's really interesting you know I'm interested in learning I'm interested in, in seeing what I can do best for the kids and then you read something else and then you read something else and before you know it that passion has really built up and, and certainly not only is it helping our teaching but it's helping all of our teachers feel super enthusiastic and passionate about their job which is brilliant as well fantastic yeah I really agree with you and it is it's almost reaching that like you know majority of teachers once you get over that amount of there's there's more teachers now talking about those meetings and the research and you know I love those moments when I'm at the coffee machine and someone comes over to me and goes oh yeah so you know that that in that paper that you sent us and, and he mentioned this technique well I, I tried it out yesterday and actually it was really interesting to see and just 
just those little conversations are wonderful and of course someone else overhears that and suddenly you have this kind of majority of people who are thinking wow maybe I should listen a bit more to this and it becomes everyone starts doing it which is lovely and I think we're definitely a much more at the beginning of that journey we've really put a concentration on it this year but there's already those conversations starting which is just so lovely to see actually Jade another thing I wanted to talk to you about is just that when we're talking about these strategies and being evidence informed how do you keep yourself up to date on on the things that are there and how do you make sure that you're not sharing stuff that is a little bit out of date or or in other papers is there's other people saying it doesn't work and that's something I grapple with a little bit and since I finished the doctorate last year the University of Bath have taken away my access to their library so now I'm I'm always trying to find where can I find access to this stuff and and luckily my school has a subscription but sometimes things aren't there and it's really frustrating when I'm trying to find a, a paper that someone has linked to me and I can't get access to it how do you deal with those type of things? Well, I think we've got to accept that there's always going to be arguments against evidence-informed strategies. So there are definitely supporters, for example, of discovery learning, minimally guided instruction. And that's fine. I think as long as you are going through the research, being sceptical, I would call it, professionally sceptical, where you're thinking, actually, you know, who's written the research? What were the results? Who who was the experiment or study done with? Is there research to support it? As long as you can do that, I think that's fine. In terms of stuff being out of date, I would say there are lots of strategies that are only just coming into the forefront, really, in education now, which aren't necessarily new. So if we look at retrieval practice, which probably, you know, 10 years ago, there will have been very few people that will have heard the term retrieval practice. But actually, when you look at it, there's there's hundreds of years worth of research that that support retrieval practice so i think that's one thing that just because you're hearing about it now it doesn't necessarily mean it's new but then i would definitely agree that there are some practices that we might have felt would have been evidence informed in in the past but have since been disproven so learning styles would be a really good example there i think the issue with that is that these are strategies or techniques that actually were never evidence-informed. So they were kind of sold as being evidence-informed, but actually they weren't. So if we look at the example of learning styles based on the theory of multiple intelligences, which said that basically people have different types of intelligence. So you could be um, linguistically intelligent or you could be logical, mathematical, uh, kinesthetic, musical. You could have musical intelligence. And that that was then transformed really into learning styles, which suggested that because we can be more intelligent in certain areas, we therefore learn in certain ways. So because we are a mathematical person, everything's got to be super logical and laid out for us, or because we learn, um, because we're good at PE and sport, therefore everything that we learn has got to be done in a kinesthetic way. And actually that was incorrect. And if we read properly about the theory of multiple intelligences, it never said that at all. So I think we've got to be careful to make sure that when we are kind of quoting theory or quoting research, you go back to the source, you look at what was written about it, all that kind of thing Um, and that can help us to make sure that we're not construing something as evidence informed which actually doesn't have the evidence to support it and then I think the other thing is there is a lot to read and you'll know that Liam there's a lot to read there's a lot to listen to there's a lot of courses to go to and and probably you'll you do best to identify those teaching and learning priorities that we discussed earlier whether that be for your school or for yourself as a teacher and then really try to concentrate on that rather than thinking that you've got to know everything about about everything and and say right for for the next couple of years I'm going to work on this and then I might work on something else after that and I think that's a fine approach to take. Such an important point yeah just not not trying to do absolutely everything and be brilliant at everything you know to making some priorities that are there taking that priority and as you say just being very 
very open to the fact that, look, we're never going to be able to read everything, but here is some stuff that is backed up by evidence. Let's have a look at this and let's see what we think, you know. And, and one of the things, actually, I was listening to you talk there and I recently watched that movie, Don't Look Up. A lot of it, they talk about peer-reviewed, you know, it's peer-reviewed, it's peer-reviewed. But but also we have to be careful of that, you know, some peer-reviewed stuff is absolute garbage, you know, just because it's had one peer review doesn't mean that it's, you know, absolutely fact what the person is saying. You still have to read the fine print a lot of the time of these studies and and very few people do, unfortunately. If you do look into the studies a little bit further, you know, you can see this was a study with six people, not like 600, you know. So I absolutely agree. I think I've heard you mention before that we don't want to just look at one study in isolation, that the reason retrieval practice is so effective is because there's been loads of studies conducted in this area and it really, they all add together. And I think that's a really important piece as well, not to just look at one study in isolation, but to look at the whole picture and think about, okay, there's lots of things now leading us in this direction. We can start to look at this in a bit more detail. And you mentioned there, you know, about about learning styles, which I think is really interesting. Do you have any other myths or things that you've come across over the years that you would say, like, this is something we used to think was really effective and really great and we all used to do it. But now with hindsight and with some evidence, actually, this is not really a a very good evidence informed practice. Yeah, so I've got two that I think we can probably talk about that I would say are kind of most important. The first is another one that really permeated the initial years of my teaching with learning styles. And that was the learning pyramid. I don't know if you know what I mean there, but basically the learning pyramid was, you know, the idea of you only remember 10% of what you hear, 20% of what you read, I don't know, 90% percent of what you do and this really was used as evidence that we shouldn't have and I use evidence with quotation marks around it because it wasn't evidence but evidence that we shouldn't have teacher talk for example that just a teacher standing up and explaining something to pupils was was ineffective and so then that kind of mutated into being observed and someone would time you with a stopwatch to see how long you talk for and we ha- we hear awful things things like that so that's the first one this this idea of the learning pyramid and um, actually the learning pyramid is a cone of learning that was created by Edgar Dale in 1946 and he was basically going through the types of experiences that we could have and going from abstract experiences all the way to concrete experiences so it's very similar to the learning styles where the where the person who actually wrote the initial theory or the initial paper never meant for it to then be taken into um, something that showed us how to teach but it was transformed in that way and actually it was never represented even as, as a pyramid the percentages were never given the percentages were, were added much much later um, Um, So that's definitely one. And I think, again, we've got to be really careful there about taking something which wasn't necessarily meant to be about teaching and learning and and kind of transforming it into that way. Absolutely. And then the second one, which I think is super important nowadays when we're looking at cognitive load theory and explicit instruction, is the myth that novices and experts learn in the same way. And what I mean there is the top scientists will learn about science by doing their own experiments and investigations and drawing conclusions and and that's how they will trial things etc and so it's really tempting to say right well what we'll do is we'll get our year 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 students to do experiments and then to think about what it showed them and actually a novice is a a person who hasn't got background knowledge in whatever they're studying and so therefore can't possibly draw the same conclusions that someone with a good body of scientific knowledge would and so that then points us to 
towards using direct and student direct instruction sorry for for novices making sure that they've got a good body of knowledge before they go on to solve problems rather than using a problem solving approach so the same in maths for example where a novice doesn't have that body of knowledge and so therefore it's much more effective to explain initial content use worked examples use part completion problems etc really guided instruction before we then move on to uh, maybe problem solving when that body of knowledge has improved for all the language teachers who are listening to this right now like Jade is, is speaking to us absolutely clearly there as well because we at this Jade as well in our field of language teachers it was huge this uh, type of learning to just kind of learn through looking at the stuff yourself and figuring out the grammar rule or figuring out how the language worked and you're absolutely right when you do that with beginners you know or even more advanced students like and you just say oh figure out the rules look at all these things and not only does it take them loads of time lots of them are incredibly frustrated at the end because they haven't managed to figure out this you know inside little rule about something and actually it's so much more efficient to just tell them this is the rule or this is what we're looking for and let's move on and as you say then when they're older and they've got much more language background they've been doing Spanish or French or German or whatever for three four years and now they can get involved in a bit more inquiry and discussions and participation and debates and learning from each other and watching movies and all those type of things that linguists do but at the beginning we we are the ones with the language you know when we are standing in front of them as a language teacher we have that language and we need to give it to them in a simple basic way trying to pretend that they're going to figure it out themselves or do it all themselves and, and get them doing inquiry at that young age when they're real beginners as you say it really is quite futile actually and, there, and there's not much point to it and, and I, I'm really glad you share that actually it's great and I think teachers worry about just telling people the knowledge because they think well they won't know it and they won't have learned it well actually obviously that's the very first stage is telling them exactly. the grammar rule for example and then it's all about that rehearsal and that practice isn't it and getting them to do whatever it is that would help them to process their understanding and cement their understanding of that grammar rule so it's not tell them something and then well, that's it you know that now it's tell them something explain it with examples really clearly look at some examples in a class do some tasks as pairs etc etc so I think that's probably one of the there's certainly the biggest differences in my teaching yeah. because on my PGCE we were sold the idea that if you really wanted students to understand something and learn something they had to discover it them for themselves so instead of me standing up and saying right this is what we're learning today these are the advantages and disadvantages right now let's look at how that might apply to different businesses for example or let's really analyze um, the consequences of that you have to get them to guess what do we think an advantage might be or you have yeah. to get them to kind of run around the room while they were reading bits of information and discovering the real meaning for themselves. So I think moving away from that has probably been the biggest change in my teaching over time. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You're resonating a lot with my PGC or my training to be a teacher. We talk about in Ireland and the UK an NQT year, newly qualified teacher year. So yeah, absolutely. That brings back a lot of memories for me, for sure. And and I guess just to be clear to all the listeners, we're not saying that there's no place whatsoever for inquiry-based instruction. We're saying that it, it is much more efficient and it works better once there is a background knowledge there already and once we have some things going on and I think that is important you know I have my older students my year 12s or say set year seven, age 17 18 they'll often go off and find the articles about that cultural content for me and they'll go and inquire and bring it in and look at the videos whereas I wouldn't ask a beginner to do that yeah because they're not going to be able to find this you know that's really important because I think that's the other thing that puts people off use of kind of explicit instruction when when exactly like you said we're not saying you shouldn't do problem solving in maths obviously problem solving in maths or investigations in science or doing your own your own research are all super important and massively valuable but do them once they're 
their knowledge of that topic is uh, strong yeah. so that they're not getting frustrated and they're not getting misconceptions but definitely use those things just kind of at the end of the learning process rather than at the start I suppose. Okay Jade so I'd like to, to move on now just to talk a little bit about people who are in leadership or school administrators, heads of departments, people who are listening to this who maybe have the opportunity to make some changes in their school. How could they get started on becoming a more evidence-informed school? Like, what are your key first steps for them? How, how do you think they could really get started on this journey? Yeah, great question. So I think, first of all, I, just as a side note, try to not get overwhelmed. I think it's really difficult to look at how much literature there is out there and what all the schools are doing and think, right, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And so, for example, all the things that I've spoken about today, there's there are things that we've developed over six years. It's we didn't automatically do teaching two teaching and learning groups and research twilights and pedagogy twilights. It's something that's been built up over time. So I think bear that in mind. In terms of getting started, first of all, identify the problems that you think are making the biggest difference to teaching and learning in your school. You know, three or four things, probably three if you're just starting out. And then really try to improve your knowledge of the evidence-informed potential solutions to those problems and really start to think about what will this look like in my context? So not just, oh, this is how people have done retrieval practice successfully, but actually in my context, in our school, what is going to make retrieval practice most um, successful? And then I think, right, once you've decided, okay, I've got retrieval practice, for example, as a strategy, and I'm not really knowledgeable about it, and I feel confident in how we're going to implement that most successfully, then obviously it's about training your staff and putting steps in place to make sure that these things are really embedded into your teaching. So making sure that you revisit that you don't just do a session on retrieval practice and then oh we've done retrieval practice and that's done you do follow-up sessions you share best practice you do uh, lesson drop-ins and you do some coaching on on how people are using retrieval practice you try and refine your approach over time if there is anything that you see in lessons that you think is making it less effective you address that in future cpd all those kind of things so it's really seeing it as this long-term process and then i would also say along with your kind of whole school priorities that you you can lead on start thinking about the initial ways of getting staff to engage in research themselves as well and that's something that I wish we'd done more of um, straight away at the start rather than someone always just saying this is what the research says can you allow time for teachers to read an article about retrieval practice instead of you just you just telling them all that kind of things okay excellent thank you so much well Jade it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation but we're, we're coming towards the end of this this chat now I mean I could talk to you all day <laughs> so um, I'm going to just ask you about some key takeaways that you'd have it's it's me teachers who are listening to this podcast and I'd love to know what kind of three key takeaways from this conversation you'd have for language teachers around the world or do you have any easy to implement zero prep strategies that you think they could put into place straight away that are are coming from the evidence? Okay so in terms of key takeaways I I hope what I've tried to get across is the importance of being evidence informed you know it does give us those best bets it helps us to overcome some some of the myths that we've spoken about it helps us to feel confident and competent in our teaching so I I hope that is uh, a takeaway. In terms of zero prep things zero prep pretty tough but I've tried (laughs) to think of a few things that I think you could do tomorrow really so you can do retrieval practice with no prep because retrieval practice is just making pupils look back at stuff that they've learned previously from memory so you could go into your class tomorrow and you could say right yesterday we did this i want you to answer answer a question or tell me something about it last week we did this topic tell me something about that uh last month we did this topic tell me something about that and then at the start of the course or at the very start of the year we did this topic tell me something about that so i think that's one one thing Great, i love that <laughs> i think spacing you can implement really easily without prep because again that just means revisiting 
revisiting stuff that you've learned previously, whether that be in the format of retrieval practice because you're doing it from memory or just practice. So, right, we learned, we learned this grammar rule in French two weeks ago. You can get your notes out and you can have a look, but we're just going to do some more practice on it. We're going to, we're going to um, revisit that. And I think questioning you can do really easy with zero prep. So you can use cold calling. You can make sure you give wait time. You can make sure you allow people to use paired discussions just by having an idea of, of those techniques in your head. OK, wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, it was such a pleasure to talk to you, Jade. And I, I want to say a massive thank you on a personal note for all the help that you gave me in the new role that I have this year. And I hope that our schools and you and I can continue to collaborate and hopefully hopefully get more schools involved in this evidence-informed journey. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. So that was Jade Pierce, everybody. I really hope you engage with that as much as I have. I've, I've been here frantically trying to write some notes and think about things. And I'm sure I'll listen back to this again and take more notes. Remember that our Irish phrase for today was Obelta, Tome Obelta, meaning I'm able to, I'm able to do this thing. That is our phrase, Obelta. Sounds quite like English, actually, that one. A huge thank you again to everyone who supports the podcast. If you want to do that, go ahead to patreon.com, look up the motivation classroom and with that I'd like to say The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer The Motivated Classroom Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website liamprinter.com For more find and follow The Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter Facebook and Instagram Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.